The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. This episode is sponsored by UnityVillage.org. Songwriter Karen Drucker returns to Unity Village with A Woman's Time Out Retreat, September 19th to 22nd. Learn more at UnityVillage.org forward slash events calendar. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Hi, everybody. It is time for a brand new podcast, and we happen to be doing the live show during a brand new spring. We just had the vernal equinox. My birthday was yesterday. Just learned that Jeff, our engineer's birthday is today. So for those of you listening in the future, we're talking March 21, March 22. So bringing on spring. So wherever you are and whenever it is, may there be springtime in your heart and something new and wonderful happening in your life. We have a new and wonderful program for you today. After the break, we will be bringing on Wayne Pacelli of the Humane Society of the United States to talk about his wonderful book, The Humane Economy. Don't you wish we had one of those? Well, I think we're going to get one. And we're going to open the show by not talking about business, but talking about babies and a baby board book. In fact, the very first vegan themed board book for babies and toddlers it's called libby finds vegan sanctuary it's about a turkey the author and illustrator my guest is julia feliz bruek she is an author and illustrator a contributing illustrator to barefoot vegan magazine her background is in biological sciences she's the founder of the vegan craftivist project which aims to use craft as gentle activism Welcome, Julia. Hi, thank you. Such a pleasure to have you all the way from Switzerland. So if we get a little bit of feedback on that mic, you know, she's coming from across a great big ocean. So, Julia, the first board book for teeny tiny vegans. Where did you get that idea? It was a few things, actually. I was taking a digital illustration course, and I was challenging myself to try different types of drawings. Usually, I'm more of a realistic uh, type of artist, and I worked in uh, charcoal and pencil. But at the same time, uh, my son was 18 months, and, you know, there were absolutely no baby or toddler-friendly vegan board books available at the time. So I decided to challenge myself and to create a a new resource for vegan parents while also um, focusing on sanctuaries. Um, One of the things that really frustrated me was that most of the books for babies and toddlers were focused on things like farms and zoos and circuses. And so I really wanted to create something to to oppose that and show that there are other choices for non-humans. So this book is actually about a real turkey. Tell us Libby's story. 
Yes, Libby. Um, my mom called me one day. It was uh, around Thanksgiving time, and my mom called me, and she she tells me, "I just convinced a family to uh, let go of a turkey that they have changed in their backyard. Um, can you help me figure out, you know, where I could take her?" So we contacted Kindred Spirit Sanctuary in uh, Florida, and they agreed to give her a forever home. And um, later, the the visitors in the sanctuary decided to name her Libby, which is actually short for Animal Liberation. Oh, sweet! <laughs> yeah. Now, how how can you tell a story like this? Certainly, most turkeys are destined for slaughter. It's not a great story for small children, and yet you managed to do it so charmingly in Libby Finds Vegan Sanctuary. How did you do that? Well, I, I really took inspiration from my son and I saw the things that he understood and I, I didn't want it to be violent or shocking. I want it to be a an uplifting story going from, you know, and seeing, um, you know, type emotions like sadness and all the way to, to happiness and following that story to sort of play also with the with their learning about their own emotions. Mm. Now, there's another character in the book. That's Chip the cow. Does he have a story? Yes, Chip is actually the first ever cow that I met and was ever close to. Uh, he also lives at Kindred Spirit Sanctuary, uh, where Libby, Libby lives, and um, he's so sweet and um, <laughs> and. Meeting him was actually one of the those special moments in my life where choosing to live vegan became, you know, that that much more meaningful to me. And I think that's why sanctuaries are so special. Because well, they, it means it means so much. And certainly for you as a mom, you have two small sons. Yes. Uh, it, I mean, being able to to let them meet these creatures, mm-hmm. it, it just changes them forever or maybe it doesn't change them maybe they're already friends to the creatures it keeps them from being (laughs) changed by the culture yes yes and not only them it's just for me as well it's just you know waking up to to this lifestyle and knowing that i'm choosing this lifestyle that is better um and it's right for not only you know the environment but and but the animals too that's also important and for my kids to to meet all these uh non-humans as well (laughs) great (laughs) that's a great thing so the book everybody it's just adorable and and it, it comes from a really good publisher it's very very well done and of course the illustrations are exquisite because you you are a professional artist so i really recommend that if there is a, a toddler or a baby in your life if you know people who are pregnant i found that the life kind of goes through these cycles where you can go for a couple of years and nobody has a baby and then all of a sudden <laughs> you know you know 20 people that are having babies so i would just say order a handful and, and just have have them on hand to, to give as baby gifts because this is not one of those books, even though it has vegan in the title, it's not something that you could not give to, you know, regular family with regular kid that just hadn't thought about this before. So Julia, tell us about some of your other proje- projects, especially vegan craftivist. That's different. Well, the the vegan craftivist project um, it's is basically what it sounds like. It's using craft as activism, and I'm collecting banners um, that state "Why vegan for non-human animals," and I'm going to sew them together and display them hopefully worldwide. And um, it's great in that anybody can get involved in in this type of activism, no matter where you are. And um, you know. I recently received uh, email communication from someone that said that, you know, that we're grateful for the project because they're not able to get out and, and do vocal activism. So uh, this made them feel like they could still have a say in, in why their veganism is important to them and for oh. non-humans. That is beautiful. Well, that is vegancraftivist.blogspot.ch. I will put that 
on the show notes. You can just go to MainStreetVegan.net, click on podcast. You'll get a nice little drop down and you can find the show notes uh, that will take you to all of Julia's uh, wonderful social media and to her website, JuliaFelice.com. Sue, do you have more books coming along? Yes, I have a few more uh, books planned for for children. Uh, My goal has always been to use my art to help raise the voices of non-humans and also to help sanctuaries as much as I can through the books themselves, actually. And um, I also have a book in the works for new vegan parents, so you can stay tuned for that later this year. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. Do you have a title for that one yet? Not yet. I haven't narrowed it down. (laughs) That's important. You know, with all the vegan books out there, and heaven knows there are lots, there really aren't very many for for parents. Mm -hmm. I know people still find this one that Dr. Michael Clapper wrote back in the mid-1980s. And they'll write to me and say, I saw a picture of you and your baby. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, 30 years ago, she was a baby. So, yeah, well, we will certainly be looking for that uh, book for new new vegan parents. So you do live in, in Switzerland, Julia. Tell us what the vegan scene is like over there. And in my experience in Switzerland, and we're going back now about 12 mm-hmm. years, a lot of dairy. Lot yes. Difficult to explain Please leave off the cheese. So how how is it now? Are you finding vegans there? I've been here now about six years. And when I first came here, there was nothing, nothing catered to vegans. And now, uh, you know, I can go to the regular grocery store and find meat alternatives and even vegan cheese, um, vegan cream cheese, pretty much um, all the basics and special foods. Um, of course, it's always the fruit, vegetables, but, you know, there's even now my, my own town, which is tiny. I live in the middle of nowhere, has uh, a vegan Indian um, restaurant Ooh. and we have an Ethiopian uh, place that does uh, vegan dishes and um, a couple other places. There's a Thai place that uses tofu. So, you know, it's a huge difference from when we first moved here where there was nothing. Yeah. <laughs> And it's great. Ah, that is wonderful. I, I love how we're getting so international, how this is spreading absolutely everywhere. So how old are your little boys now? Sebastian is about to turn three in oh. April, and Adrian is about to turn uh, nine months. Oh, well, you'll just be writing children's books for a good <laughs> long time. Lucky us. <laughs> <laughs> for a That's while. a great thing. So if you had just a little bit of advice for a, a vegan parent, what would that be? Um, have uh, faith in yourself and your choice to raise your children um, with, you know, vegan values. I know there's a lot of pressure because usually, at least I am usually the only vegan <laughs> around here. Um, but just, you know, stay strong and, and true to your to your ethics. And that's beautiful. And and I think your your children are, are compatriots in this. People, uh, lots of times when I talk to someone who wasn't vegan when their children were born and wants to go vegan a little bit later, they're very concerned about it because their kids have gotten used to eating in a certain way. And the culture, of course, with all the, you know, uh, TV commercials and Happy Meals and this and that, it makes them think that certain things are are important and and necessary and the parents are very nervous about making the switch but i think when you've really explained to kids about the animals and if you can take them as you have done to a farmed animal sanctuary you really don't have to do any more than that they are vegan mm-hmm. for life mm-hmm. yeah my my kids you know I get a lot of comments of, wow, your, your son eats so many vegetables and fruit and you know, it's, it's what he knows. It's, it's what he knows. And, and it's just the way things are. And I think as he gets older, he'll understand more and more why we choose um, to live the way that, that we do. And I think, yes, it'll definitely make a big difference to know, um, you know, that the reason why we're vegan is because of non-human animals and we don't want to hurt them. 
Yes. I think sometimes when parents go vegan for health reasons and and they try to get their children on board, well, little kids aren't interested in heart disease. That's not a concept yes. for them. <laughs> but, you know, getting to know a, a pig, that's big. Yes. And, and I think whatever the adult reasons are, and they're all valid and they're all great, and, and thank goodness uh, we have everybody on board, but with kids, it's the animals that speak to them, and that's a really great thing to be able to exploit. Yes. So yay for sanctuaries uh, <laughs> and for Libby and her wonderful life down there in Florida and for being the great big star of a little bitty book that, as I said before, if you know somebody who's in the baby business, they need to have Libby Finds Vegan Sanctuary by Julia Feliz Bruet. Thank you so much for joining us today all the way from beautiful Switzerland. Thank you so much for having me on. It was great speaking with you. Ah, uh, you too, Julia. Thank All you. the best. And you everybody too. else, thanks. Stay with us. We're going to be bringing on Wayne Pacelli and who knows, maybe getting ourselves a humane economy. We'll be right back. like to share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world? That's easier than ever with mobile giving. Just text Unity Radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet? And be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. Like life, grief is a journey, not a destination. Whether it is loss of life, relationship, security, or simply the process of change, have you given yourself permission to begin your journey of grief? Have you yielded to the gift of grace? Join Reverend Chaz Wesley every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central on a virtual navigation from grief to grace. And explore new horizons of empowerment, significance, and support. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'll light a candle in your name. You're listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everybody. And for those of you who may be new to our program, I am Victoria Moran, and Main Street Vegan is pretty much what I do. You can check us out at MainStreetVegan.net. We have all sorts of interesting things going on over there. Among them is a blog, and this week's post is from Diana Goldman, and it's about the dairy industry, the cruelty in the dairy industry. A lot of people don't really understand this, and it's a beautiful kind of mother-to-mother post 
about her experience as a human mom and a cow's experience. So that's really worth taking a visit to uh, MainStreetVegan.net. Hope you will do that. Well, we were talking at the beginning about Vernal Equinox birthdays. Well, guess who else had a birthday yesterday? The paperback version of a very important book that came out last year. It's called The Humane Economy, Animal Protection 2.0, How Innovators and Enlightened Consumers Are Transforming the Lives of Animals. And I'm so happy to be introducing you in this segment to the author of The Humane Economy, Wayne Pacelli. He is president and CEO of the Humane Society of the United States, the nation's largest animal protection organization, driving transformational change against large cruelties across the globe for all animals. Welcome, Wayne Pacelli. I'm so glad to be with you. Been wanting oh, to be I'm on for a while. I know, I know. And I'm trying to think how how far back do we go? I, was it the early 80s? Was it oh my gosh, the late 70s? I feel like you've been working for animals since you were but a wee tyke. <laughs> I think it was probably 1984 or 1985. So okay. that goes back a ways. That's more than 30 years. 3 decades. Ow. So to tell us your story. How how did you go from being a regular guy to heading HSUS? Well, I, I loved animals when I was a kid, although I didn't understand the wide range of problems that animals face in our society. Like a lot of people, I had good instincts, but very little information about factory farming and animal testing and trophy hunting and you know, the fur trade and all of those different issues. I had little you know, inklings here and there. But it wasn't until I went to college that I really kind of dove into the topic. I became vegetarian and then a month later a vegan. So it's been about 32 years for me now uh, with that dietary regimen. And I started an animal advocacy group. So I'm a, I started as a grassroots advocate. I'm not, you know, someone who came through nonprofit management training. I I uh, made my bones on the street, if you will, <laughs> and and uh, I did protests against first doors and brought in speakers to my university and you know wrote things did did everything I could like so many grassroots activists did and you know one thing led to another I started writing for a magazine that you wrote for Victoria called the Animals Agenda and mm-hmm. and then I I joined Cleveland Amory's organization the Fund for Animals, and became its executive director when I was very young, and then joined HSUS, and for the last 13 years, I've been president and CEO. It's been a privilege and an honor to, to uh, you know, serve animal protection and to, to uh, you know, try to work as hard as I can to, to kind of bring some hope to a cause that has, has a lot of pain and suffering with it, but I think, as I talk about in my new book, a lot of hopefulness as well. Mm. So tell us about HSUS. I think a lot of, of people, certainly vegans, um, you know, know about some of the more, um, I don't even know how to say it, so some of the organizations that are more specifically vegan, and they don't understand everything that HSUS does. Well, sure. So HSUS was founded in 1954, so, you know, less than a decade after the the Second World War and at a time of pretty robust growth um, in the United States, uh, the real rise in manufacturing and industrialization. And, you know, very soon after HSUS was formed, factory farming uh, really kind of became grounded. And, and uh, if we could have gone back in time and, and really fought that intensively when it was starting, uh, that, that would have uh, per, perhaps changed the course of history for farm uh, animals. But I've been there for 23 years, so 13 as CEO, but 10 years prior to that as the chief political and communications person. And I'm the first vegan president of HSUS. I'm only the sixth president in the history of the organization after 63 years. And I decided uh, with the board's consent and agreement 
to really take on farm animal issues in, a, in an aggressive uh, national and international way. But HSUS, long before I was there, was about all animals. If you look at our logo, if you go to humanesociety.org, our website, see our logo is 19 different animals in the shape of the United States. It's meant to convey that we work on a big scale and we do advocate for all animals. And there are many groups, as you've noted, that focus on veganism, some focus on dogs and cats, some on big cats, some on, on animals entertainment. And that is really part of the strength of our movement, the diversity, the pluralism of interests. But we really believe that animals, more than anything, need a big, powerful organization that can take on the biggest problems that exist for animals. You know, rescuing animals is great, and we do a lot of it. We helped 300,000 animals last year directly, so we believe in it. But alone, as a strategy, it's insufficient to deal with the magnitude and diversity of the problems that exist. Many animals are exploited within major economic institutions, major sectors of our economy, food and ag and science and testing and fashion and wildlife management and entertainment. And the only way we're going to crack the code on those problems is to challenge the orthodoxy within those fields. And if that means taking on factory farming, it means taking on cosmetic or chemical testing, or it means taking on trophy hunting, some group has to have the strength and the moxie to go after these problems and to face down some of the biggest, most powerful industries that typically advocate for the status quo. They've been in power for a long time. They are used to exploiting animals, and uh, they want to continue it. And that's exactly what they're trying to do, and they've been able to swat away animal advocates for many years, but less so now because HSUS, in many respects, has the power to, to uh, confront these problems and take these problems on. You do so many amazing things, and yet I know that you also come under attack from what looks to me like two sides. So there, there's one side that seems to always want to attack HSUS that seems to be the, the, the business industry status quo kind of side. And then you also get more of an extreme or radical movement within animal rights that also is saying you don't do enough or you're not doing it right. So how do you go forward with power and presence? And you do have presence. Listeners, if you ever get a chance to hear Wayne Pacelli speak live, do it, whatever it takes. He's an electrifying speaker. How do you do all this when you know that there are people trying to to dog your every step? No pun intended. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a good observation, Victoria. Thank you for those very nice compliments, by the way. You know, I think for me, I've, I've wrestled with these issues. I've, as I said, I've been a grassroots activist. You know, my personal lifestyle, you know, I do my best to align it with my value system. So if I'm not going as far as some others go in terms of tactics or rhetoric, it's a conscious decision because I think that our goal as animal protection advocates is not to be pure or perfect. It's to influence others and to move them along and to try to enlighten them about animal issues and stir them to act. You know, we live in a very culturally diverse uh, world. We have different experiences. We have different backgrounds. We don't all start in the same place. We don't all end up in the same place. And I've tried to have a set of core values, uh, you know, that animals matter, their lives matter to them. We humans have responsibilities to them. Cruelty, no matter the context or the place it occurs, is wrong. Uh, but at the same time, I want to be inclusive. I want people to be able to take even small steps because those small steps get people going. They get momentum going in the right direction. And then people typically take more small steps or eventually bigger steps. And the key for me is embracing and celebrating any kind of action um, and, and not holding people in such firm judgment that they haven't done everything, so therefore, you know, you shouldn't do anything. And I think that any movement, any cause, 
can can get a little bit too orthodox at times and can value you know some of the these these personal activities more than the broader uh, work of reaching new people so when you cast our work as kind of drawing brick brats and and uh, negative attention from animal use industries and also from uh, a segment of our movement that's exactly right i mean that's the place that we're in and for me you know that's personally uncomfortable because i get a lot of attacks and i don't enjoy it um and you know it's it's hurtful uh even while you know i'm in a cause where i see so much pain and suffering of animals and when you're alert to the suffering of animals that's tough even if you've got an amazing support network but it's not about me <laughs> it's about the animals and you know i try to soldier on and i'm convinced that there's a mainstream sentiment in this country that opposes cruelty to animals and what i'm trying to do is have people logically apply anti-cruelty principles and that means thinking about you know food and agriculture and all these other parts of our society that animal cruelty is not just a random act of violence against a dog a cat a horse or some other animal it can happen in institutional settings and it can happen in the biggest businesses and be conducted by the government and we want to take those problems on and you know we're tough and we're aggressive you know while we take a mainstream approach i don't think anyone should should confuse that uh with a timid approach we fight the NRA and we fight the farm bureau and we fight the toughest um entities out there that are the forces for the status quo or the forces of animal exploitation and uh, again you know when i started in this cause in the mid 1980s when you and i met victoria you know i felt that we were just trying to be part of the discussion that we weren't winning very much as a cause and i want to win because animals lives are at stake and whether that means in the congress or a state legislature or a ballot measure with a big corporation or in the courts we want to prevail and the way that you prevail is by amassing power and strength and uh you know convincing the biggest companies the most important ceos and senators and others that this is the way to go and that's what we've been trying to achieve at HSUS. Mm, you're doing a fabulous job by the way. Now there's something else Wayne in the same area and that's about allies. I really believe in working with allies. In fact, next week's show it's actually kind of funny we did a pre-record because next week I'm going to be out having birthday fun with my grown-up daughter and and this lovely guest a, a yogi a charming guy really really good writer was on for the second time and i just assumed he was vegan i mean you know he contacted me and the show is called main street vegan so i didn't exactly you know do some kind of background check i just assumed and then while we were doing the interview at the very end which people who listen next week will hear he, he blurted out and by the way i'm not vegan <laughs> so how do you find allies how do you work with them and how do you convince other people that in doing so you haven't gone to the dark side well i think you're you're correct victoria that the the game of animal protection like any important cause is really a game of addition and not subtraction you want to add people into the cause you don't want to subtract you don't want to say well you know you don't measure up therefore you can't be part of us and that goes with my mantra of progress not perfection and when you look at the threats that exist for animals it turns out that when you address those threats when you do better for animals you often do better for people i mean that is one of the really important observations that i've come to through many years is that that more kindness toward animals promotes more kindness in society more cruelty to animals leads to you know violence against people or it leads to other adverse outcomes and you know i know that you have regaled your listeners for you know for the entire length of your run of show about the 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 perils of factory farming and it's not just terrible for animals it's bad for resource use whether it's topsoil or grains or water 
uh, you see the overuse of antibiotics, you see the dangerous use of hormones and, and other inputs into the system. Uh, we see tremendous release of greenhouse gas uh, gases into the atmosphere as a consequence of this. We see personal health threats, whether you know heart disease or arteriosclerosis or certain forms of cancer. So when we eat a, a, a plant-based diet or a more plant-based diet, we're doing something good for ourselves. When we eat more plants, we get animals out of factory farms. We have less manure that's washing into our streams and rivers and, and polluting our bays. So I think that that's true across the board. You know, I see the data on domestic violence. One day it's a dog or a cat in a home. Another day it's a child or a spouse. I mean, it's really about the misuse of power. That's ultimately what animal exploitation is about, that human beings are misusing their power and hurting a more vulnerable uh, being, in this case one who can't speak for himself or herself. And that's why we, you and, and I, and so many others are speaking up in defense of them because there's something unfair, there's something wrong. And again, I think we've settled the basic question in society that we all recognize now it's a universally held value that cruelty to animals is wrong. The problem is applying that principle consistently, and that's what we're all trying to achieve. So what do you say, Wayne, when you're in alliance with someone who is in, say, the, the animal uh, agriculture or, or other, other industry that exploits animals, but you're trying to get some movement there in a positive direction, and someone says to you, you're, you're in bed with the devil. Mm-hmm. How do you respond? Well, again, I, <clears throat> I would say that, that again, my, my goal is to bring people in and have them move in a positive direction. You know, animal protection is not an all-or-nothing proposition. I mean, every animal life matters. A person who does Meatless Monday, um, you know, if the average American eats 30 animals a year, if they cut out meat one day a week and don't compensate by eating more meat the rest of the week, uh, they can save, you know, 15% of the animals that would have been on their, on their, uh, on their menu. And, you know, if you, univer- if you universalize that, you think about the United States raising 9 billion animals, if 320 million people went Meatless Monday, uh, observed Meatless Monday alone, we would save more than a billion animals. I mean, that is staggering just by doing it one day a week. So easy, you know, a learning experience for people to try, you know, other forms of cooking and sample new, new dishes, uh, good for their health, you know, you know very stimulating for them in a lot of ways. And I, I think that, you know, working with, with a concept like that, you know, I want to work with farmers. I want farmers who are family farmers to be a bulwark against factory farming, to join animal protection advocates in critiquing the factory farm model that's terrible for animals, but it's also, you know, terrible for rural communities. It's terrible for the neighbors. Um, you have to live near these factory farms with all of this concentration of animals and all the contra- concentration of waste that pollutes the environment and putrefies the air. So if people say, you know, don't bring these other people in, I say, well, that's, that's not the way that we approach it. This is a tactically, strategically smart move for our, for our movement. And what's the alternative? I mean, I, I don't really expect... Uh, an immense revolution to occur, and I don't think that revolution, if it were to occur, is going to be thwarted uh, by having people join with us in discreet ways. If they don't embrace the whole ethic of animal protection, embracing a portion of it is positive for animals. Well, you put that very beautifully and, and very clearly, and I think anybody, whether they want to agree or not, understands the position and you know i'm a pragmatist (laughs) i'm all for okay what can we accomplish here and that's one of the things that i so admire about what you do now what you said about meatless mondays was so interesting because it reminds me of something in your wonderful book the humane economy which we're going to move into but at the back of that book you have 10 things you can do to contribute to the humane economy and one of them you said that i had never thought of until i read this book was minimize and eliminate food waste 
waste. Now, who would have thought about that? But you say Americans throw out 40% of their food, including 22% of animal products. We could spare more than a billion animals in the U.S. alone every year just by eliminating food waste. And Incredible. There's, there's, yeah, and there's not a – I mean, who would argue that it's acceptable to raise an animal – typically in a, in a confinement situation or in a factory farm-like environment, raise the animal, put the animal through all of that, have the animal transported and slaughtered with all of the stress and fear associated with it just so then someone can throw a portion of it away. I mean, we're so disconnected from our food supply uh, that, you know, that has become normal. And when you think about the staggering amount of food waste that happens you know, before the food gets to us as well as, you know, after it's on our plate. That is so easy for us to think about smaller portions and, and you know, really, you know, being conscious about this. I mean, more efficiently using food is a pathway to save the lives of hundreds and hundreds of millions of animals. That's incredible, and I, I've never heard that or, or read that anywhere else. Uh, there are very few things that are new under the sun, <laughs> so thanks for bringing one up. So this book actually brings up a lot that is very new and very exciting, and as I was telling you before the show, I find this absolutely thrilling because I kind of came out of just sort of the tail end of that hippie era when we didn't trust business or the establishment or anybody over 30. And now what I see looking out into the world, a humane economy really is beginning. And some of these companies, the food companies, the fashion companies, are doing such innovative things. So tell us about the humane economy and why that's where you decided to focus with this book. Well, Victoria, you and I have heard so many arguments against animal protection for so many years. And one of those arguments is, well, if you adhere to animal protection, if you try to live by this credo, then you've got to sacrifice. You know, you're doing without. You're giving up meat. You're giving up convenience. You're, you're giving up, you know, clothes that are fashionable. I mean, all sorts of different arguments are advanced along that same line or different case examples. And what I argue in the humane economy is that animal protection is no longer a sacrifice. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us as individuals to use our moral intentionality to do good for the world, which feels good. You know, when we act in a way that is generous and charitable to our family or to our friends or toward our community, you know, giving to charity, that makes us feel good. That's a joyful side of who we are. Uh, as individuals. And I think in the broader sense, when businesses now are operating in an environment where all of the work that we and so many others you know, by our side and preceding us have done to raise awareness about animals, and now there is this mainstream consciousness that animals do matter, that it is wrong to treat them cruelly, and that many people have given options would choose the less harmful course or the non-harmful course. Businesses are recognizing this. So now when, you know, a company is marketing cosmetics, they can choose animal testing or they can choose no animal testing. If they choose no animal testing, they can put a little label on the product and say this product was not tested on animals. That's good as a marketing strategy. I mean, not only is it the right moral thing, but it's the right marketing strategy. People are going to buy that product because they're aligned with the values of the company that says, we don't want to torment animals in order to get this product in the marketplace. The company that's still doing animal testing is not going to advertise that they're doing animal testing because that would repel people. But then when people know that they do it, then they're the subject of shareholder activism. They may have protests. There would be regulatory reform efforts to pass laws to stop it that the company then has to hire lobbyists to try to defeat. The people in the company don't feel as good about the company because... You know, they're not living in a way that's consistent with the values of our country. You know, I think that that example, in the broadest sense, that companies now have choices, and those choices are actually going to, to build the bottom line for the company, that they're actually going to do better in a general sense. 
It's not true in 100% of the cases, but it's generally true. And that's why we're seeing every sector of the economy, which is really how I break up my book, into all these different big domains in which animals are used by the millions or the billions. And I'm saying, and I show in my book, that in every domain we are making incredible progress, which is showing me that there's a rising tide of consciousness. If it were just one company, or if it were four companies or five companies, but we're talking about hundreds, in fact, thousands of companies that are now changing their business models to reflect a greater sensibility toward animals. Now, it doesn't mean they're perfect. You know, companies that are selling food, you know, like a McDonald's or a Walmart, are saying we're going to go crate-free or, or, or cage-free, and they're phasing it in over time. A lot of people say, well, that's not enough. I agree it's not enough, but you've got to start somewhere. And, and, and again, no company that has had the business model built around industrial agriculture is going to change overnight. You've got to, you know, take a stair-step approach to it. And our view at HSUS is we want to promote continuous progress. We don't say, you know, okay, you did cage-free or crate-free, and that's it. You know, we're asking them to do more plant-based options. We're asking them to think about other agricultural practices. I mean, it, it doesn't end there. It's part of an ongoing discussion for the company to continue to strive to reach a higher level of animal welfare uh, attentiveness. It's interesting, Wayne, that I don't think I've ever gone to a premiere of an animal-centric or vegan-oriented documentary when somebody in the Q&A didn't raise a hand and say, but isn't the real problem capitalism? If we just get rid of this economic system, then the animals won't be exploited anymore. And I've never quite understood where they make that connection and yet it seems to be a widely held view do you hear this i have heard it and and obviously i think people are frustrated by the way that many business businesses have operated and you know if you think about factory farming you know it really has been a race to the bottom it's it's about you know, jamming more animals into a system, growing them faster than they're, you know, biologically capable of growing in a healthy way. And, you know, people thought, my God, this is, this is capitalism run amok. But again, that only happens because there's a consumer base that tolerates it, that somehow isn't thinking through those issues. But in an informed society, where you have groups like HSUS and others that are pushing these companies, that are driving awareness, that are conducting undercover investigations, that are doing ballot measures, that are filing lawsuits, that are you know, promoting alternative uh, products in the marketplace. That is what is changing things. And what I advocate for in the book is not to say that free market capitalism is going to lead us entirely out of this. I essentially argue that an informed citizenry, informed voters can drive reforms in a system that's built around the principle of regulated capitalism. You know, I believe not just in companies doing the right thing, I believe in the government setting minimum standards. I mean, you could have a hundred companies that are doing things the right way, you know, in the food retail sector or the production sector, and four or five companies skirt that, and they take a moral shortcut and that undermines the work of those, you know, that larger universe of companies. And that's why I think, you know, we have the law, is to capture the outliers and to set a minimum uh, standard, which is why, you know, we've, we've run the table with all the big food retailers saying they're going to embrace cage-free as a production strategy and sourcing their eggs. But we're not satisfied with that. We want the law to forbid cage confinement of these animals because even a few companies can violate it and that would create a, a real calamity for animals. I mean, that's why we have laws against dogfighting. You know, if, if 99% of us agree that dogfighting is wrong, immoral, cruel, barbaric, 1% of the people can really create havoc for dogs. And that's why I say that it's really regulated capitalism, that, that the marketplace can help drive good outcomes and the government can set minimum standards. And people can feel powerful. I think sometimes when we feel like, oh, nobody listens to me, well, they have three different kinds of non-dairy milk at Starbucks. <laughs> no, they didn't start out that way. So 
Wayne, have we reached a tipping point? Are we at the place now where creating a more just world for animals is a priority? And if we're not there yet, what's it going to take? Have I lost Mr. Pacelli? Oh, okay. Lovely listeners, every now and then technology intervenes. Okay, we're going to try to get him back for five fabulous last, uh, last minutes. And I'll just tell you some of the things that are going on with Main Street Vegan. If you haven't checked out Main Street Vegan Academy, do that. Just go over to MainStreetVegan.net, click on Academy, and read about our truly magical six-day program live and in person in New York City where you can come and be trained and certified as a vegan lifestyle coach and educator. Take a look. We'd love to have you. Mr. Pacelli has returned. Wayne. Yes, the power right. went out. So, How about that? Ah, first, oh, my first goodness. First time ever. That, wow, that's exciting. So yeah. I was asking you about this tipping point. Where Are we at the place where it's absolutely going to change? Or if we're not quite there, what do we do to get there? I think the forces are very, very powerful. I think that there's this this baseline sentiment of concern for animals that is going to continue to propel good outcomes for animals in the broader sense. I will tell you that I think the current political alignment with President Trump and the Republican majorities in the House and Senate at the federal level is going to retard some of our progress. We've already seen some backtracking on some really important federal policies for animals, uh, and I think we've seen some of that at the state level. Uh, we're a nonpartisan organization. We don't say that, you know, one party is great because of this broad set of policies. We, we basically call balls and strikes on the work that politicians and their parties represent on animal protection. And, you know, since January 20th, we've seen four or five major actions at the federal level that are against the interests of animal welfare the takedown of massive amounts of data on animal welfare inspections um, for puppy mills and uh, Horse Protection Act. Uh, we've seen a, a reversal of a phase-out on the use of lead ammunition for sport hunting. Uh, we've seen national wildlife refuges in Alaska opened uh, to barbaric practices like trapping of bears or aerial gunning of grizzly bears or uh, hunting of wolves during their denning season. Uh, we've seen a freezing of rules that were were adopted to protect horses from abusive practices like horse soaring where they injure the feet of horses. So there are very specific things that have happened that that are against the you know the, the grain of progress, but no cause, no big cause that is really seeking sweeping change like ours is is ever going to have perfectly linear progress, that all movement is going to be forward uh, forward progress. You know, we may see two or three steps forward and one or two steps back. And I think over time, we're going to see tremendous progress in these areas. But, you know, change that we are advocating for on this scale, facing off against such powerful interests, is not inevitable, and it's certainly not self-executing. We have to have people involved. You cannot be a bystander in the face of so many of the crisis situations that exist for animals. You can't leave it up just to you or to me or to others who have long been involved to handle these issues. We need new recruits. We need people who are uh, acting in ways that are conscious and intentional in the political sphere, in the marketplace. And when we have a really informed group of citizens who are working hard on these outcomes, then we'll see faster progress. We can all be the catalysts for major progress for animals. What a glorious statement on which to end. Thank you so very much, Wayne Fuseli. Everybody, the book is The Humane Economy. And, and read his, his uh, 
prior book too, The Bond, a New York Times bestseller, beautiful, beautiful book about humans and animals. And we'll put all the information about both our guests and their websites and whatnot on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. Thank you so much to both of our guests. Thanks to Unity Online Radio and our engineer, Jeff Comfort. And to all of you, God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. It is the birthright of each and every one of us to live an awakened life. Most religions and spiritual traditions teach us that we need to adopt a certain belief system or follow some prescribed steps to attain a state of enlightenment. A long-held belief about awakening is that only a small number of people destined to become gurus or spiritual teachers can attain it. It is certainly true that until recent times, only a small number of people on the planet had attained this state of full self-realization. These saints, mystics, and spiritual masters were seen as special. They certainly were at the time. However, times are changing. This message was brought to you by T.J. Woodward, host of Awakened Living Radio. Learn more from T.J. on his weekly podcasts. Episodes are available on UnityOnlineRadio.org, iTunes, and Google Play Music. Dorothy Day, a co-founder of the Catholic Worker Movement in America, called for not a revolution of arms, but a revolution of the heart. Since the beginning of our nation, the American Revolutionary War, and long before that actually, there's not been a time without conflict somewhere in the world. Makes you stop and think, doesn't it? Certainly we live in challenging times. Each day brings seemingly limitless opportunities to take offense. And each opportunity offers me a choice. I can give a knee-jerk response in fear or anger, or I can choose consciously to respond in love. My choice may seem insignificant. After all, I'm only one person. But as history has taught us, one person can make a difference. Peace can begin with me. To find a Unity Church near you, please visit our website at www.unity.org. Spirit of Recovery is the place where spirituality and recovery meet, where we support your spiritual growth. Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D., interviews down-to-earth guests who share with you how they keep going and growing in recovery. Spirit of Recovery is the place to get practical tips and join in lively discussions on topics that matter to recovering people. This program welcomes everyone who wants to know more about recovery. Join Anna and her guests live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central Time on Spirit of Recovery, where we talk about what keeps you growing. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. You know the saying, a good deed is its own reward? Well, moving toward a plant-based diet and vegan lifestyle is one kind and compassionate act that isn't just its own reward. It will also reward you with vibrant health, boundless energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, and according to Yogi's and Unity's co-founder Charles Fillmore, even give a boost to your spiritual life. On Main Street Vegan, the radio program named for the popular book, Victoria Moran will make your move in a vegan direction easy, fun, affordable, and delicious. With enticing topics and entertaining guests every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
benefits of spiritually conscious living start now. For a time-tested method to live with purpose and release your infinite potential, tune in to the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Pacific, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts. 